Hello, and welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. So in this episode, we'll be finishing up our look at the Mansions of Madness, specifically chapters 10, 11, and 12. So if you've read this story before, um, or, uh, uh, you know, if you read this before, you know that this is kind of the action scene of, of the story of the, of, the, of the short book, short novel, where our heroes, Dyer and Danforth, um, you know, they're not the most heroic people in the Lovecraft uh, canon, but they're, they're not too bad. They certainly have a strong belief in the importance of science and scientific inquiry, which is uh, certainly respectful to modern uh, audiences. But it's, uh, it really deals with their escape from the City of the Elder Things and uh, the, you know, and, and we find out partially what happens to Danforth that leads to his insanity, his madness, which is referenced uh, from the very early pages of the story. Now, in this revelation, which happens really just in the final page of the story, it's, it's very mysterious. We don't quite know what Danfer sees. We know they flee from a Shoggoth. Um, that is mimicking the voice of the Elder Thing. So that's kind of the very dramatic moment that dominates the final three chapters of the book. But uh, Danforth saw something else or experienced something else in the final pages um, when looking at the vastness of the Mountains of Madness. Uh, in fact, the Mountains of Madness that are referred to throughout the story, we haven't really fully seen yet. Uh, they're only fully seen during their escape as they look on upon a much broader cosmos that is accessible apparently through uh, somewhere near where the city of the Elder Things exists. But Danford sees something, so we're going to have to kind of try to break down perhaps what that might be. Um, but we'll get to that. Um, but by and large, there's not too much uh, to talk about that's not going to be repetitive from our earlier conversations. Um, so as chapter 10 um, begins, uh, we, they just found the bodies of Gendry and the missing dog. So they know that that's sort of a dead end. Um, but they, uh, at this point, you know, maybe a rational uh, person um, sensing perhaps some danger. You know, how did they die? It's not clear. Um, the original thesis was that they went mad and killed off Lake's team. Um, of course, there's reasons to doubt it as they go through and document the history but they found that they also got this wonderful historical record of the elder things the murals and there's plenty to um, bring back to civilization for future study so they've done their scientific due diligence by this point um, but they start to hear noises um, quote had it been some some trace of that bizarre musical piping over a wide range which lake dissection report had led us to expect in others it would have been a kind of hellish congruity with the eon dead region around us a voice from other epochs belongs in a grave of other epochs. As it was, however, the noise shattered all their profound seated adjustments. End quote. So he's saying here, if it had been that musical piping, had it been some kind of uh, otherworldly sound, they would have had good reason to leave. But they hear a mundane sound. You know, it turns out it's the sound of penguins. It's this, uh, quote, raucous squawking of a penguin. And so they follow the penguin sound deeper into these... Um, tunnels and, and it deeper into the city of the elder things and then we see these famous six foot blind penguins living in these caverns um now dyer is able to make some kind of suggestion about what these penguins are uh what they're doing there um the theory seems to be that they've evolved uh into giant penguins blind giant penguins over many you know centuries thousands of years while living 
you know, underground here. But but why? But you know, is it just that this is a population of of penguins that lived there and, and just sort of matured? That doesn't seem to be what happens. In fact, the suggestion it seems to me is that they were domesticated uh, by the shawgas or the elder things. Uh, perhaps originally domesticated by the elder things for feed for the shawgas, or later domesticated by the now semi-conscious uh, uh, shawgas. Remember, uh, one thing we learned in previous chapters is that the shawgas were created by the elder things but have evolved on their own terms and their brain has expanded and they're able to mimic the elder things and reflect them and i talked about the consequences of this for lovecraft's perhaps vision of race and slavery in uh, the earlier episodes and we'll come back to this issue of slavery in the mound when we finally get to the zelia bishop revisions um but anyways they find these uh these uh six-foot penguins, which seem to be domesticated livestock for the Shawgoths. Um, and they're driven again by curiosity. The curiosity is com not completely sapped from their um, from their spirit, and, and it continues to drive them deeper and deeper into these, these tunnels. And it's, we're sp explicitly told that there's other things that draw them on. Um, Quote, doubtless it was suicidally foolish to venture into that tunnel under the known conditions, but the lure of the unplumbed is stronger in certain persons than most suspect. Indeed, it was just such a lure which has brought us to this unearthly polar waste in the first place. Now, they do take the time to look at a little bit more of the few more of the murals. Uh, they passed some of the murals after they found uh, Gendy's body. Um, and the dog's body, um, but they start looking at them again and they notice a declining quality and Lovecraft calls this decadence. So we're back to his thesis of civilizations becoming decadent. And I almost get the feeling in some of these sections, he's almost making references to modern art. Uh, we've talked about this before way back many episodes ago in my review of the story of the Hound, for instance, or you could take a more recent story, Pickman's Model, both of which deal with modern art and modern trends in art. And Lovecraft seems to find not much of value in artistic modernism, um, preferring, I, th I would think, the realistic um, images of the mid-19th century or even perhaps neoclassicism, finding more value in those, um, that type of painting. But he, he sees here the, the decadence. And it's defined here not so much in stylistic or theme as in modern art, but just in a decline in artistic quality, uh, inferior workmanship uh, of both the architecture and in the, the murals uh, that are documenting the, the life of the elder things. Um, so that's pretty much what happens in chapter 10. It's, it's mostly the centerpiece of this is the penguins. We do learn a little bit more about uh, the elder things civilization, um, but not much that we didn't already know. That in the aftermath of the great revolt of the Shagas, their civilization declined. We know that they were driven to this city. We know they were driven sort of underground, underwater. Um, and one thing we, we start to learn in the final chapters is that the elder things greatly fear something nearby. And this is closely related to what Danford sees in the final pages of the story. So after fighting a war against Cthulhu and his spawn, after fighting wars with Amigo, after surviving for all these millions of years on Earth, in their final remnants of their civilization they're right up against something that's even horrifying to them uh, as ancient as they are and you can imagine what it means for for poor dyer and danforth who don't quite know what they're in 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 for so chapter 11 um is basically dealing with the the escape um 
from the tunnels. They go a little bit deeper in um, and they find dead elder things. So that's uh, at first it just appears to be obstructions like uh, something blocking the way ahead because of course they're in dark tunnels with torchlight, flashlight light or whatever. Um, but they see uh, these dead bodies. Um, quote, the light of the second torch left no doubt of what the obstructions were, and we dared approach them only because we could see even from a distance that they were quite as past all harming power as had been the six similar specimens unearthed from the monstrous star-mounted graves at Poor Lake's camp. Uh, so these were, seemed recently killed elder things, right? And they think, well, maybe the penguins did this, right? Because who, well, what else have they encountered that could explain it? But there's a little logical argument that Dyer goes into that explains that, you know, this is not how penguins fight. Even six-foot penguins couldn't have done this kind of damage to these creatures. And then this brings us to, I think, one of the most fascinating sections in the entire story. And this is Dyer's reflection. And I think we can take Dyer as almost an extension of Lovecraft in this sense of his... Uh, kind of sorrow for the elder things and their misery. It's, um, you know, the first thing he's reminded of is the slave revolt that happened. Quote, for I had seen those primal sculptures too and had a shuddering, shudderingly admired the way the nameless artist had suggested that hideous slime coating found on certain incomplete and prostrate old ones. Those whom the frightful Shagath had carelessly slain and sucked to a ghastly headlessness in the great war of resubjugation. They were infamous nightmare sculptures even when telling of age-old bygone things, for Shoggoths and their works ought not be seen by human beings or portrayed by any being. The mad author of the Necronomicon had nervously tried to swear that none had been bred on this planet and that only drugged dreamers had ever conceived of them. Formless protoplasmic protoplasm able to mock and reflect all forms of organs and processes, rubbery 15-foot spherophoids, infinitely plastic and ductible, slaves of suggestion, builders of cities, more and more sullen, more and more intelligent, more and more amphibious, more and more imitative. Great God, what madness made those blasphemous old ones willing to use and to carve such things. So these are the Shoggoths, right? Um, so then we get this whole paragraph. It's one paragraph in the, in the Klinger Anthology, which I'm relying on. It's on page 561, um, and it dominates most of 561. It is reflecting on the humanity and the common humanity between human beings and elder things, what they have in common, right? Which is very clearly, there's no commonality with the Shagas, but there is this commonality with the elder things, right? Um, both being sort of, uh, well, well, let's just come on and say it, uh, like a master race in a, in a hierarchical civilization that ranks and divides people by their physical features. Right. There's certainly some suggestion of racial theory here, which I find quite hard to avoid and get around. Um, you know, as alien as the elder things are, there's that commonality, right, that of of being on the top of a civilization and also a commonality in being in a declining civilization. If we take Lovecraft's letters earnestly uh, in this and kind of use that to help be a guide to some of these stories, which hopefully works, because otherwise I'm wasting my time with those letters. And all those other podcast uh, episodes. Um, listen to this. It was not fear for those four missing others. For all too well did we suspect they would do no harm again. Poor devils. After all, they were not evil things of their kind. They were the men of another age and another order of being. Nature had played hellish jest on them. 
as it will on any others that human badness, callousness, or cruelty might hereafter drag up that hideously dead or sleeping polar waste. And this was their tragic homecoming. They had not been ever even, even savages, for what indeed had they done? That artful awakening in the cold of the unknown epoch, perhaps an attack by the furry, frantic, barking quadrupeds and the dazed defense against them and the equally frantic white simians with their queer wrappings and paraphernalia. Poor Lake, poor Gendy, and poor old ones. Scientists to the last, what they had done that we would not have done in their place. End quote. So that's the other point of commonality is that these were also scientists. And this is hinted back way back in chapter four when we see the the, the, the attempt to experiment on the human bodies, that even in their final days, the elder things hold on to their curiosity, which is right there alongside Gendry. So I think when we break it all down, as uh, is, is different as this story is from many other Lovecraft stories, in fact, as we'll see in the next episode when we jump into the Shadow Over Innsmouth, we're back like, right away into familiar territory. One thing that makes this different is this kind of celebration and embrace of curiosity and the scientific method. Um, so... Uh, Clearly, uh, you know, almost on every page or some reference to the drive of curiosity, the drive of like, you know, this desire to fill in what the imagination, uh, you know, the, well, where imagination failed, this drive to have science pursue uh, an answer, right, through investigation, which is why they documented this history. It's why they lakes dissected the elder things bodies it's why these people keep going deeper and deeper into the tunnel and it's the same thing that these elder things have even in their final final days um so um now there's a, a bit of a break not long after this where we get lovecraft connecting once again to edgar Allan poe's uh, arthur gordon pym story which it's been a while since i looked at but um there is um this is important because in, in Arthur Gordon Pinn, there's um, birds and even some like native people that use this word tikalili, tikalili. Um, and that's like a, a, I guess, a catchphrase, right? And I, I forget the full context of that. It's really something I should go back and look up. But um, Lovecraft takes this to be almost a suggestion that Arthur Gordon Pym's story is almost like a prelude to the Mountains of Madness. Those explorers of that ship, that, that ill-fated ship, were on to something that Lovecraft is later exploring to this. Of course, you know, it's obvious Poe didn't have exactly what Lovecraft had in mind, but Lovecraft is kind of stealing Arthur Gordon Pym and repurposing it for a story. And, it, and I think it's quite effective here because that's what they start to hear. They start to hear this tickalili which uh, to them is this fearful outerworldly sound, the same thing that they didn't scare them away because before because they just when they heard the penguin sounds, right? They said, oh, that's a that's a penguin sound. So we can keep going. But when they hear this, they're in flight. Quote, they, we were in full flight before three notes or syllables have been uttered. So immediately they begin to flee. So then we get this race out of the out of the tunnels and they don't really uh, see much of it in fact if you've read the original um story in amazing there's that great image of them fleeing with their flashlights from the shoggoth right but they're not looking back at it there is one moment though where they do look back at it again that seems like scientific curiosity for a moment takes over in fact this is suggested by the exact reference to to orpheus right uh like orpheus of course looks back after 
freeing his wife from hell. He goes down to hell, uses music to subdue the creatures of hell. Pluto uh, get, he gets, his, gets his dead wife back, but he's got a promise not to look at her until they leave Hades. But in the last moment, he looks at her and she's condemned to stay in hell. That's uh, the stories I remember it. I think operas have slightly different versions. Some have a more happy ending in the end. But anyways, he looks back. But Orpheus was driven by some unconscious force. In his case, it was love, right? Love for Eurydice. Uh, in this case, it must be curiosity. That's the only explanation I can give. And they see the Shoggoth just momentarily, right? But not very clearly. Um, what we're told more than what he actually sees, we don't get a description, which is... Which is kind of cool, because I think at the end of the story, we kind of go back to more traditional classic Lovecraft, where things become unnameable and undescribable, and un- you know something that can't really be described. And that's certainly the case with Danford's final, what he finally experiences. Um, but it does disturb both of them profoundly. Um, quote, Danforth was totally unstrung, and the first thing I remember of the rest of the journey was hearing him lightheadedly chant a historical formula in which I alone, mankind, could have found anything but insane irrelevance and what he starts doing is he starts calling out the the subway stations of boston south station under washington under park street under kendall central harvard you know them being in a tunnel you know and he's just kind of imagining he's in a a much safer more familiar environment specifically the the tunnel system of of boston it's quite uh it's quite well done here um, but even Dan, uh, even Dyer, our narrator, is disturbed by this, where he's told, uh, quote, we're told, the words reaching the reader could never even suggest the awfulness of the sight itself, end quote. But it's essentially, it's a Shoggoth, right? Um, we, he, he tries a little bit to describe it. A great black front looming colossally out of infinite subterranean distance, constellated with strange colored lights and filling the prodigious burrow as a piston fills a cylinder, end quote. Um, by the way, this scene is 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 uh, kind of redone in the seventh Dark Tower novel by by Stephen King. Um, it's not my favorite of the Dark Tower novels, but it's certainly a a really nice read and a really fun read. But there's a scene where uh, uh, towards the climax of the whole book, where Susanna and Roland and Oi, because Oi's still with them at the point, yeah, yeah, Susanna leaves and then Oi dies. That's the order of events. So it's just the three of them at that point. And they're fleeing a dark tunnel uh, without much light. Um, and he, Roland has to carry Suzanne on her back because, of course, she doesn't have legs. And it's, it's a very similar scene of this flight and not able to look back at the horror behind them. It's, it's kind of like a Shoggoth there, too, essentially. Um, but they finally get out. But they still hear this call, tickly tickly And, you know... When they first hear the sound, it's not clear what's making it. It seems to be the language of the elder things, in the sense of the outer, the, the old ones. But it's actually the Shoggoth mocking, like uh, mimicking uh, the, the voice and the sound of their master, which is something that was referenced in an earlier chapter, and we talked about in the last episode, and, and I went into what this might mean for... Maybe we could project from this some thoughts about Lovecraft's views of maybe African American culture or or the impact of slavery on on the culture of slaves, right. which you know Lovecraft perhaps suggesting that slaves are only capable of really mimicking the the culture of their master, which of course isn't true. Historians have effectively described the the, the agency and the cultural sovereignty of of enslavement and women. 
since then. So anyways, uh, chapter 12, the final chapter of it. So again, this just kind of accounts their escape. Um, and it's, it's not a very long chapter. It's only a few pages. But, but they get in their plane and they start to fly away. And they're able, as, they're, as they get in their plane and escape, um, they're able to look around. And they see that they see the real mountains of madness at this point. That the, the mountains, that they see, the, the, the descriptions that dominate so much of this story, the descriptions of the scenery and the city of the elder things and the massive mountain ranges, the stuff in lakes accounts of the mountains are only just the tip of the iceberg of this greater mountain range that almost reaches into uh, a cosmic geography. There's, a, there's moments here where the geography of Antarctica extends into this cosmic geography. We get mentions of Kadath and the plateaus of Lung and, and these other places that have been suggested in the story, but we don't get a, a firm description that there's a connection, there's a relationship between these places until here. To quote it, uh, for a second, he writes, quote, for a second we gasp in admiration at the scene's unearthly cosmic beauty, and then vague horror began to creep into our souls. For this far violet line could be nothing else than the terrible mountains of the forbidden land, highest of earth's peaks and the focus of earth's evil, harborers of nameless horrors and Achaean secrets, shunned and prayed to by those who feared to carve their meaning, untrodden by any living things of earth, but visited by the sinister lightnings and the sending strange beam, beams across the plains in the polar night. Beyond doubt, the unknown architect of the dreaded Kadath in the cold wastes, beyond abhorrent Lang, whereof unholy primal legend hint evasively. We were the first human beings ever to see them, and I hope to God we may be the last. If the sculptured maps and pictures of that pre-human city had to, told truly, these cryptic, violent mountains could be could be much less than 300 miles away, yet none were less sharply, yet none the less sharply did their din elfin essence jut above that remote and snowy rim, like the serrated edge of a monstrous alien planet about to rise into unaccustomed heavens. End quote. Really great. So far away, 300 miles away, but they see an even greater um, uh, domain, which they don't venture into. Um, so. Then this just leaves, really, the only issue left is, is Danford's madness and what he sees, right? Um, now, Dyer doesn't experience it, even though he could just as easily look back and, and see it. So is there something about Danford? And Danford's already a little bit unhinged from his experience with the Shawgoth. Um, but anyways, he looks back and he, you know, he basically has his nervous breakdown, right? Quote, all that Danford ever hinted at is that the final horror was a mirage. It was not he declares anything connected with the cubes or caves of echoing, vaporous, and worm honeycomb mountains of madness which we crossed, but a single fantastic demonic glimpse among the churning zenith clouds of what lay back in those other violet westward mountains which the old ones have shunned and feared. So he's referring to it's something that exists in those farther away mountains, right? It's not the Shoggoth. It, it's not just the Shoggoth like peeking his head out of the tunnel and doing a last scare. It's not that. It's something greater. It's Is it... Is it uh, Azathoth? Is it Yogsathoth? Is it one of these uh, outer gods? Is it some other uh, something that's been undescribed up to this point that uh, was known to the elder things and feared by them? It's not clear, right? But there's something, we're back to something unnameable and undescribable. And it's kind of nice to be back to this after this long story where everything is so meticulously 
plotted and described and and documented in scientific detail right so if you read the story as a whole and the novel as a whole we start out with this very very obsessive detailing of the supplies and the trip and and how many people are on the expedition and the core samples and even with lakes dissection of the elder thing everything is very meticulous but we're back to just the pure horror of the unknown which is something we've we're used to we've been reading that since the very early um of lovecraft stories right now why does danford experience this and uh dyer who's right there too it seems that only danford was capable to see it what we're told quote danford indeed is known to be the few among the few who'd ever dared to completely um go, to go completely through that worm-riddled copy of the necronomicon kept under lock and key in the college library of course we've already met this book in uh the dunwich horror and he read it. Now, Dyer says before he's aware of it and he's looked at it, but Dyer, Danford studied it. So maybe he's already aware of something. He already had, let, let's, let's say it's Yogg-Sothoth or something. He's already been in contact with Yogg-Sothoth, perhaps, and, is, and that gives him the ability to observe what's there. Um, or perhaps it's something completely different altogether, but it seems Lovecraft is making a point to say his reading of this book gave him a certain awareness and a, an ability to understand this because he, he says it's not real it's a mirage right it's a reflection of of something so is it just a memory is it just him piecing everything together at that moment is it uh some reference in the necronomicon that he's able to connect this experience to it's not clear but it's somehow related to that right so i don't think lovecraft even knows quite what is there i, I don't think it's really particularly decipherable um but that's it. That's the story. And they get away. And once again, we're, I think somewhere towards the end here, we're, we're again warned other expeditions need to stay away. In fact, we're told there's another expedition on Antarctica at the same time on the other end. And Dyer hopes they'll never, you know, find, see this stuff. And of course, the whole text exists to kind of warn people against coming back. So anyways, that's all I really want to say about this story at the Mountains of Madness. Uh, it's not my favorite of his tales. I know a lot of people say it as it's like the pinnacle of Lovecraft's work. Um, I don't know if I fully agree, but I do think it's it's something you have to read and, and fully kind of embrace to, um, to under, just to understand his whole work. It's something you can't really avoid um, reading, but it is one of his more tedious works, I think. Um, but in the end, it, it really is worth it. I think the last chapter is really amazing. Um, especially with this uh, shift to Danfer's unique perspective on, on these experiences and this discovery of something even beyond all the amazing things that we've been told. There's the deep history of the elder things, the elder things, alienness, their body, the, the mountains themselves, but there's something even beyond it, these violet mountains far in the distance. It's really, really nice. Um, but anyways, now at this point in the podcast, we're about ready to get into Lovecraft's revisions from 1929 to 1931, the period of time I'm looking at in this block of stories. But we can't quite get there yet uh, because we have one more story to look at, um, a story that, like At the Mountains of Madness, was written in 1931, but not published until much later in his life. This one, uh, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, was written in the winter of 1931, November and December published in 1931 uh or sorry published in 1936 um and then later in weird tales after lovecraft died um so this 
another one of his great stories, another lengthy tale that's going to take us a while to get through, at least three episodes. Um, and it's one I'm really looking forward to coming to. In fact, what's trying to drawn me back into studying Lovecraft and, and trying to write about him and think about his letters has been my thoughts and my reflections on The Shadow of Rinsmouth, which I think uh, is one of his most important stories for understanding his philosophy of the sea, his perspective on, on race, his perspective on, on um, geography, uh, cults, vernacular networks of knowledge, all these things come together uh, in this story in really, really amazing, amazing ways. Of course, it's one of his more problematic tales. It's often been criticized as, as going back to some of his more really vulgar racism that we saw in earlier stories. I don't know if that's, I mean, that's there, but but I'm, I'm willing to suggest it may be a little bit uh, harsh on this tale um, to to reduce it to that, because there's a lot more, a lot of interesting things going on. And um, So I'll talk about my overall thoughts about The Shadow Over Innsmouth in the next episode. I'll, uh, I'll introduce at least the first chapter of that story. Uh, it's only five chapters, um, so it's fairly long, though, um, but it's the chapter's are a little bit longer than the ones in at the Mountains of Madness, but there's five of them. I'll cover at least the first chapter and some of my overall thoughts on the story in in the next episode. Um, so that's coming up, and I'm really looking forward to sharing my thoughts about this story um, in, in upcoming episodes. So anyways, if there's anything, any thoughts you have about the Mountains of Madness overall, uh, specifically about Danford's, what he experienced or what he saw, uh, what that mirage is, if you have any theories about it, I would love to hear them. If you have any thoughts overall about the story, I'd love to hear them. Again, I think what's really connects this whole story together is, is curiosity and science and exploration. I think that's really the theme that runs through the whole thing um, and drives our narrator so, um, so aggressively into the Mountains of Madness and into the City of the Elder Things. So anyways, you can write me at uh, my emails at 100pagescast at gmail.com. You can also uh, connect to me at Twitter or you can, uh, you know, just leave a comment on this podcast thread or on iTunes. So um, that's going to be it for now. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Please don't let me lose my rightful mind. Thank you.